All right, well today, hey, we're going to conclude our brief study of 1 Corinthians. And Jerry and I both would tell you there is so much more that we could do here in the book of 1 Corinthians. Just about every week, Jerry and I are talking about what we're doing the next week. And, and this week's been the standing joke that uh, I've got 35 minutes to go over 58 verses. And uh, if you've been around me, it is a joke that I'm going to be able to do that. But there's so much more that, we would, uh, that we'd love to cover in this book. And I know that in the days ahead, certainly we'll be coming back to the book of 1 Corinthians. But if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's where we're going to land our, uh, our study today. And we've talked about a lot of uh, different issues of behavior. We've talked about divisions uh, within the church. We've talked about moral purity. We've talked about meat that was offered to idols and how offensive that was to some people. Well, other people saw absolutely no problem with it. Jerry did such a great job last week talking about agape love and what real love is, what it looks like for followers of Jesus to really love. And uh, what a great time that was to spend in 1 Corinthians 13. And we've had various other topics that we've covered over the last uh, few months, but today we want to focus on what is the central fact of Christianity, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. I was thinking about it this week, that it's not very often that just a couple weeks before Christmas that you talk about the resurrection. Usually we're talking about the birth of Jesus, which we will do over the next few weeks. But today we're going to finish our study in 1 Corinthians on the resurrection. Here's what might be interesting to some of you. Did you know that the Greeks did not believe in bodily resurrection, in resurrection of the dead? In fact, when Paul preached at Athens, he was standing up in front of the Areopagus, the aristocratic council. And when he got to the part about telling them that Jesus had risen from the grave, some of them actually laughed at him. They thought he had introduced humor into his little talk that he was giving. They did not believe in that doctrine. The Greek philosophers taught that the body was the prison of the soul, and the sooner the soul was set free, the better off a person would be. Now, there's some of us, depending on how you feel about your body, you might agree with some of the Greek philosophers and you might say, that is, that's my prison. My, my body is my prison. If I could get out of my prison, things would be good. The Greeks looked at the human body as a source of weakness and wickedness, and they couldn't conceive of a body that would continue on to exist after death. And it was because of that kind of thinking, actually, that Paul felt the need to give this lengthy defense of the resurrection not only of Jesus to establish that once again as fact, but also to give his defense of the resurrection of those of us that are followers of Jesus one day, that we will be resurrected. And so he spends chapter 15 doing that, and it is a lengthy chapter. And by lengthy, I mean 58 verses. And so uh, don't be panicked this morning. We're going to get you out uh, of here on time, but we're going we're gonna to breeze our way through chapter 15 and so we're going to need to move uh, rather quickly. If you have your Bibles open there, let's read in verse 1. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. And so right up front, 
In these first few verses, Paul reminds us of the gospel which he had preached to them and which they had at some time before during the 18-month period of time that he had been in Corinth, they had received that. And he reminds them that there are three essential elements of the gospel. And I want to do that right up front here in just a couple minutes. I have people that say to me all the time, in fact, I've heard people say this about churches, you know, when a pastor talks about the gospel a lot, why are you always talking about the gospel? Well, we talk about the gospel a lot here at Northwest because we believe that if we don't talk about the gospel, that nothing else matters. It is the gospel that matters. It's why we spent months in the book of Galatians, because the gospel matters. And it matters that we get it right. And so Paul, right up front here in chapter 15, he wants to remind them of the gospel that not only he received, but he preached to them, and that at some point previously, they had received that gospel as well. And he gives them three essential elements of the gospel. Number one is that we are sinners. It's been amazing to me. I used to think when I was preaching on the gospel or talking about us being sinners, I would kind of make a comment that would go, well, of course, all of us understand that we're sinners, right? And everybody would go, yeah, yeah, we all get it. We're sinners. But the more and more that our world goes on, I really believe there's some people that don't think they are sinners. In fact, I think I live close to some of them. I think I do life with some of them that kind of go, me, moi, a sinner? Like, I I don't do anything wrong. And if I do, it's got to be somebody else's fault. It wouldn't possibly be my fault that I'm a sinner. The Bible makes it very clear that we are conceived in sin. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and we've fallen short of God's standard, which is moral perfection. And as a result of that, we have been separated from God. And that separation is eternal unless something is done. And that's why... Essential element number two of the gospel is not only are we sinners, but Christ died to save us from our sin. Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all so that we could be made right with God, so that we could enjoy the relationship that we were created to have. I say it like this uh, very often. We have a debt that we can't possibly pay on our own. That's called sin. We're sinners. As a result of what Jesus did on the cross as a sinless, perfect sacrifice, he has paid that debt. All we need to do is accept the payment that he's made on the cross. Essential number three of the gospel and what we're going to focus on today is that Jesus rose from the dead and he's alive today. Here's what you need to understand right up front in chapter 15. A dead Savior would be no use to anyone. Now you think about that over all the world's religions, we are the only one who worship and serve a God who is alive. Do you know where Buddha is today? He's in a tomb. He's dead. We are the only ones that worship a God who is alive. A dead Savior would be no use to anyone. And so Jesus validated his claim to be God by insisting that he would rise from the dead. And three days after his death, he did just that. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, he was in effect saying, I accept, I receive that sacrifice as payment for the sins of mankind. And so what is our response to that if we are going to respond to the true, pure, simple message of the gospel? We accept that by faith we place our trust in Christ alone as our Savior from our debt of sin, and we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship that we were created to have. That's the gospel. It's really that simple. And aren't you glad it's that simple? 
I'm glad it's that simple because I'm simple. And if it were very complicated, I probably wouldn't get it. But because it's simple, Jesus said that we come to him how? Just like one of these little children. That's how we come to him. We don't come to him after we understand all kinds of deep doctrinal truth and all kinds of abstract passages in Scripture. We accept the simple truth of the gospel that we're sinners, that Christ died to save us from our sin, and he rose again, thereby conquering death and sin. The Corinthians, it's important to understand, didn't doubt the resurrection of Jesus. They had had accepted that as truth. What they were doubting was their own resurrection, that they would actually be risen again from the dead because of the Greek philosophers and the teaching that was around them. And so Paul goes on and he gives them evidence for the resurrection of Jesus because if Jesus has been risen, then we have hope of resurrection. However, if Jesus hasn't been resurrected, then we have no hope either. And so verse 5 says, He appeared to Cephas, who was also Peter, and then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, and I wish we had about uh, two weeks to study that little phrase right there, one untimely born. It's a fascinating little phrase there that we are not going to be able to jump into today, but you can do some study on your own. Referring to himself, one untimely born, he appeared also to me, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Paul is basically saying, hey, the resurrection is a historical fact. And he demonstrated that by just, just two major ways. He was seen by Peter and all the apostles, as well as, Scripture says, he was seen by more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now think about that. If 500 people saw him at the same time, and Paul says not only did those 500 people see him at the same time, but most of them are still alive. He is in effect saying this. Hey, if you don't believe me, there's at least 500 people that did see him, go and ask them. And for all those liberal scholars out there that would say, well, there was kind of a conspiracy, they kind of all got together and decided on the same story. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you were with 500 people and you agreed all to say and do the same thing together? It doesn't happen, right? 500 people saw him at one time. And Paul says, hey, if you don't believe me, go ask them. Then Paul says, lastly, he appeared to me as one untimely born. Means he didn't do ministry with the other disciples, the other apostles. He wasn't a believer. He wasn't a follower of Jesus at that point. But you remember that uh, Jesus met him in Acts chapter 9 as the Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus to do just what was his life's calling, and that was to persecute Christians, that Jesus came down and, and introduced himself to Paul, who was Saul at the time, and said, what are you going to do? And he knew what he was going to do. He was going to persecute Christians. And that's when the Apostle Paul came to faith in Jesus, whom he saw that day. And he said, as a result of that, I go and I'm given my life for this cause. You can trust the resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection, there'd be no salvation. For a dead Savior can't save anybody. 
And so now, argues Paul, I know that you're, you're, you Corinthians believe in the resurrection, otherwise your faith would be empty. And then he goes into these next uh, several verses, beginning in verse 12. The argument goes something uh, like this. Some of you are familiar with this passage. It goes something like this. You obviously believe in the resurrection of Jesus. How could you not, given all the historical evidence that he was raised from the dead? Not just historical evidence, because there are still people alive who observed his risen body after he rose from the dead. So since you believe all that, let me just for a moment tell you the consequences if that is not true. And so he uses seven if-then statements in these next several verses. He says, verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, the resurrection is at the heart of everything. If there is no resurrection, if the resurrection is not reality, then we have a problem. And Paul gives seven, if the resurrection did not happen, then here's the effect. He says the effect number one is Christ is not risen. And if Christ didn't rise from the dead, if God couldn't even bring his own son from the grave, then what makes you think he'll bring you from the grave? Number two, our preaching would be in vain. Let me tell you this morning, if I didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as some liberal scholars across this country today, I would never do what I do. Would you, Matt? Would you, Jerry? Would you do what you do? Sunday school teachers, would you do what you do? Life group leaders, would you do what you do? Would you give what you give to people from the word of God if you didn't believe that the resurrection was true? No, we wouldn't do that. Our preaching would be in vain. You would be very, very silly people to be here this morning. You could be at home getting all the appetizers ready for the big NFL games this afternoon. You could have slept in. You could, some of you did because you didn't come to the first service, right? That's what happened. You could be doing all of those things. You would be crazy to come here and listen to somebody yell at you for 35 or 40 minutes. If the resurrection is not true, Paul says, our preaching is in vain. Number three, your faith is in vain. What do you have faith in? Jesus is still in a grave, rotting in a tomb someplace. Number four, the apostles and others have lied. And if they've lied, how stupid are those guys? who gave their lives, who were tortured and suffered because they preached and taught this pure gospel that, that Jesus had been risen from the dead. Number five, if, if there is no resurrection, then we are still in our sins. Sin's power is not broken. And that's pretty sad. And number six, if that's not bad enough, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, then those who have died in Christ have perished. Oh yeah, those funerals that you've been to for your loved one, for your friend that died and that pastor stood up and he said, they're in a better place. They trusted in Christ alone as their savior and, and we know that they're in a better place. No, that's not, if there is no resurrection, there is no comfort there. Those who have died in Christ, they have perished. They no longer exist. You'll never see them again if there is no resurrection. Depressed? Because there is a resurrection. Number seven, 
Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then we are a most pitied people. We're a most pitied people. We're a, some translations would say, a pitiful people. If the Christian's hope in Christ is just what he or she can expect while they're on this side of the grave, then that person deserves pity. Now, of course, there are some benefits to being a follower of Jesus. I say to my friends who are unbelievers all the time, when I talk to them about the gospel, let's say I'm right and you're wrong. Let's say you're right and I'm wrong. Let's say you're right and there is no resurrection and we just all cease to exist. We go into the ground, that's it. It was nice to know you, that we're done. I've still lived a pretty good life for the most part, right? In fact, Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.8 that godliness has value for the life to come and it has some value for now. That's, that's all right. However, if I'm a realist, and that's what I am, if I'm a realist, I say, would I do all of this if there is no resurrection, if this is all that there is? And I say to you, I don't think that I would. I don't think I'd take the stand that I take. I don't think I'd do the things that I do. I don't think I'd be a passionate, as passionate about the things that I'm passionate about if there is no resurrection. If we have nothing to hope for other, on the other side of the grave, then the Christian life would not be worth living. We are a pitiful, pitiful people. Now, if you look at verse 20, verse 20 I love. Because verse 20 is the whole transition. You can see these people are going, oh my goodness, I thought Aunt Mary, I thought I was going to see her again. And now there's, and then Paul goes, but. My favorite word in all of scripture. Tweet that. But, I love it. Every time in scripture where you see that little word, but, you know that something good is really gonna come. Look, it says, it says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's awesome. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Just when everything seems lost, when things seem hopeless, Paul says, but Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul said that Christ was raised from the dead and that his resurrection guarantees our resurrection one day as well, those of us who die in Christ. Paul turns everything around and he says basically that, that, that if, if all this was true and it is true, then all the things that he just said, it's just the opposite. And I'm glad for that. Christ is risen. And if Christ is risen, then, then what? Then just the opposite is true. Everything is in reverse. The gospel preaching that we do is valuable. Your faith is priceless. The apostles spoke the truth. I preach the truth to you this morning. Sin is forgiven. The dead in Christ, those who have died, that have left us, that we know, that we loved, if they've died in Christ, we will see them again. And if all of that is true, and Paul says it is, the resurrection really is true, if, 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 Jesus, if God really did raise Jesus from the dead, then we will one day be raised as well. And so as a result, we can be satisfied on this side of the grave because we know there's so much more that's waiting for us on the other side. And so Paul goes into this next section here and he compares Christ with Adam and we're not going to go into that whole section for the sake of time this morning. But Paul turns then from Christ's life to the Christians experienced, are you ad hominem for the resurrection? You know what ad hominem means. It's an argument to appeal to one's self-interest rather than to logic. 
He's appealed to, somewhat to their logic already, and now he's going to just appeal to, to, to self-interest. He, he basically says this in these next few verses that seem to be taken somewhat out of context. He says the Corinthians' actions and his would literally border on absurdity if the dead will not rise. And so the paragraph is something of a digression, and the main argument then again will resume in verse 35. But verse 29, he says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, some of you, if you read this chapter this week and you said, hey, they're going to speak on chapter 15, you go, I hope they talk about verse 29 because I don't understand verse 29. Well, I'll just tell you I don't either, okay? And that would just kind of leave it, at, leave it at that. I did a little bit of study this week. I have my opinions of what it means, but I read this commentary this week and this theologian, much smarter than I, said there are no fewer than 30 to 40 different interpretations of that verse. And I thought, given the fact that I have 35 minutes, I won't give you all 30 or 40 different variations of that. We don't know. Some speculate that they were being baptized for uh, people who had died in Christ, but maybe they came to Christ on their deathbed, had, had never had the opportunity to, to be baptized, to publicly express their faith in Christ. And so these people were being baptized as some sort of a proxy baptism for those people. Others believe that maybe these were Corinthians who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, but they knew that family members, that loved ones who had died before them didn't understand the gospel, never responded to the gospel. And so as a result, they were going to be baptized for them. Again, kind of a proxy baptism. Some of you have friends who are Mormons. Mormons hold very strongly to this doctrine of baptism for the dead. We don't know, the point is, uh, about exactly what Paul is talking about here, but what we do know is that uh, what was being done in Corinth was that there were people that were being baptized for the dead. And what Paul is saying is, if there is no resurrection, if they just all cease to exist, then why would you even be baptized? Why would you go to the trouble because they are gone forever? And then he says, verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in, in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? In other words, I put my life at risk every single day for the gospel. He doesn't literally mean, by the way, that uh, I don't believe that he was fighting with wild beasts. Most scholars believe that this refers to his time in Ephesus when the people of Ephesus rose up and they began to attack him. He refers to those people as wild beasts. We can only imagine what they looked like. But the, the, the expression, I believe, describes his conflict with those hostile human adversaries. And he's basically saying this, why would I be willing to go through all of this if there is no resurrection? In fact, he concludes the whole section by saying, if the dead aren't, aren't, are not raised, let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we're going to die. Paul ends the section by basically repeating what he's already stated, and that is, if there is no resurrection, then what we're doing is absurd. He quotes Isaiah 22, verse 13, refers also to what Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes. If there is no resurrection, no life after death, then the only sensible approach is for us to get all the pleasure we can right now, gather all the possessions that we can right now, have all the fun that we can right now, because when we die, we just cease to exist. And so if there is no resurrection then we're stupid. We should just go out and have lots of fun. Now, let me ask you this. How did you live your life over the last seven days since we were last together? 
Did, did you live your life as if there is a resurrection? As if this is really not all that there is? That there is something beyond the grave? Or did you live your life, if you're honest, did you live your life as if there is nothing past this planet? So I'm going to get all the pleasure I can get out of this time here on this earth. I'm going to gather all the possessions that I can while I'm on this earth. I'm going to amuse myself and my family. And I'm going to take it all in because when I go into the grave, that's it. Did you live your life that way? Just think for just a moment. Now, if you're a good little Christian who's got little whizzy buttons because you've been to Sunday school and you know lots of Bible verses, you say, well, I lived based on the resurrection of Jesus. Did you really? Did you really live that way this week? I would say to you that if all of us as Christ followers, as followers of Jesus, if we lived our life this week, we would have no empty seats probably here this morning. We would be so convinced of the reality that there is something beyond what we see here today that we couldn't, we couldn't help but be influenced by that in our lives. Paul says, verse 33, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good, good morals. And I've heard many youth pastors that take this verse and they go, see, that's why, kids, you got to watch out who your friends are. I used to say when I was a youth pastor, you are, like you, are, you are like your friends are or you soon will be. They would use this as a proof text. Problem is, that's out of context, right? It's not exactly what he's saying. What he is saying is this. The quotation actually was contained in an ancient comedy and had become proverbial. The Greeks generally recognized that statement as encapsulating a wise thought. What he's saying is this. Hey, if you're going to hang out with dumb, stupid people, you're going to be dumb and stupid and you're going to do the wrong stuff. All right? Now, parents, here's what we like to do. We like to say that to our kids. Hey, make sure you're hanging out with the right people, you know, because if you hang out with the wrong people, you know, you'll start uh, smoking weeds and, you know, drinking and you'll be doing all that kind of thing for too long. You know, you'll be out there in Colorado selling stuff and you'll be doing, I mean, that's what we like to say. But the truth is that the statement is universally true for all of us. You hang out with wise people, you become wise. You hang out with fools, people in this case, contextually, that don't preach and teach solid Bible doctrine, you will go off onto tangents. We live in the information age, and it's so easy for us to listen to so many different things and hear so many things that just keep coming at us over and over and over and over again. It's important for you to listen to the right things. It's important for you to know and understand God's word so that you can tune out those things that are contrary to the written word of God. And Paul is saying for a lot of them, that's not what they were doing. That's why they were doubting whether or not there actually was even going to be a resurrection. And so you talk about a mean preacher. Look at verse 34. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor. Now, some of you think I mean sometimes. Well, I've never told you to wake up from your drunken stupor. I mean, I've never done that. He said, as it is, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Some of the people that you're listening to don't even understand the things of God. And they don't understand the things of God because you've not told them about the things of God. But you cannot listen to them. He goes into verse 35 and he says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? This is interesting because this is where I think Jerry and I would like to do about three weeks right here. What is the resurrected body and what does it look like? It's the key question that's here through verse 49. And Paul uses, an illustrations, uses illustrations from nature 
to show that there is no life apart from death. In other words, the seed is put into the ground and it's planted and it dies and then it bears fruit. And while identified with the original seeds, it's different from it. And so the question that they're asking is basically this, what is, what is the resurrected body going to look like? Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered that? I have. The resurrection body of Christ illustrates what Paul is teaching here. The believers recognized him. You remember when they saw him, they recognized him. So there must have been some kind of continuity between his crucified body and his glorified body. He was able to change his appearance. He passed through locked doors. We know that. That's pretty cool, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to be resurrected if you're going to get a body where you can pass through doors? Wouldn't that be great, parents of teenagers? Open this door immediately. No, never mind. I'm going right in. All right, that's what Jesus did with his resurrected body. We know that he ate fish. We know that he had honey. He invited the disciples to come and do what? To touch the the nail prints that were in his hands. And so while it was the same body, it was also a different body. The truth is we don't know everything about what our resurrected bodies will be like. And so we ask questions like, will believers have scars on their resurrected body as Jesus did? You ever ask yourself this question, will I be overweight in heaven? (laughs) Just fascinating to think about, right? I mean, will I look like uh, that guy that's got the sick? I mean, my ideal resurrected body, I mean, I got it in my head. I mean, I'm going to have six-pack abs. I'm going to walk around heaven with no shirt on. I mean, I'm just going to do that because in my mind, that's what the resurrected body is. Now, you're laughing, but some of you, you've laid in bed at night going, I wonder what I'm going to look like in heaven. On a more sobering note, have you ever thought about it this way? Diana and I, we had a couple of miscarriages. You ever thought about those little babies? What will they look like? What will they be like? Will they be a little baby? Will they be 10 years old? Will they be 16 years old? Not 48, because I'm not really liking that. Maybe like 25 right? What will they look like? We wonder those things. And here's the conclusion I've come to. Most likely the bodies that we will have in the future will be those that glorify God the most and whatever that may involve. And I'm sure while guys, we'd like to have those six pack abs, I'm not sure that that's what brings God the most glory. I think more something like this would be more, (laughs) that's not funny. That was not meant to be, meant to be a joke. Cruel people, very cruel people. Hey, let's skip on for the sake of time. We need, to, we need to land the plane here. Let's skip down to verse 50, just real quick, because we can't stop without uh, getting into this section real quick. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the moral puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that he's written. This is awesome. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? 
Here Paul is dealing with the second coming of Christ and what it means to both the living and the dead, recognizing that there will be some people who will be in the grave that have died in Christ. There will be others that are still alive and remain when that trumpet blows. And get this, blink your eyes. In that moment that you just blinked your eyes, everything's going to take place and we're going to, the dead in Christ are going to rise first Then we which are alive and remain. We're going to be caught up with them in the clouds and we're going to forever be with the Lord. Why? Because there is a resurrection. That's why. In Christ we have hope. I thought this week as I was studying how hopeless the Greeks were when they thought about death. Theologians record for us that there were inscriptions on tombs in ancient Greece and Rome that indicated that death was their greatest enemy, that they saw no hope beyond the grave. But because of the message of the gospel, we don't have to fear the grave because there is a resurrection and in Christ we have life and we have hope. So let me just say this to you. If Jesus really did come out of that tomb alive and if he really is alive and he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God and he's interceding for us on, on our behalf, how does that influence the way that you live your life, the way that I live my life right now and in the days that follow till the day we die? I ask the question all the time, so what? You ought to do it on a regular basis as you do your Bible study. So what? You should not be reading the Bible just so you can get a fatter spiritual head. Some of you know more than you're ever going to do, all right? You need to ask the question, so what? Paul said to Timothy that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, basically so that we might know how to live, so that we might know how to speak about our faith. So why did God give us 1 Corinthians 15? So what? What does all of that matter? So I believe in the resurrection. I believe Jesus is risen, and I believe as a result of, of him conquering death that if I die in Christ, I'll be resurrected again. I, I get all that. So what? Look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If the resurrection is true, Everything that we do in this place, it's for a reason. It's for the sake of the gospel. Because the gospel is true. Because Jesus really did rise again. Because he is going to come back for us one day. Because we will go to be with him one day. Some of you know that one of my favorite preachers, and has been that way probably since I was 13, 14, 15 years old. I know many 14 or 15 year olds Probably didn't listen to Christian radio, but for whatever reason, I did, and I listened to Chuck Swindoll, and I loved listening to Chuck Swindoll preach. I probably, looking back, I loved his stories. He's a great storyteller, and I probably liked that more than the doctrinal truth that he was espousing, but he became one of my favorite preachers. I read this. He wrote this uh, not too long ago, and I, I read it, and I, and I made a few res uh, uh, revisions, which was very humbling, you know, when somebody is like your favorite preacher in the whole world, and then you start revising what they've written. That's kind of so I'm sure he listens to my podcast every week, so I apologize to you, Chuck, as you're listening to this. I've made slight revisions. But I want to read this to you. I think it will encourage some of you today as we close. He wrote this, The resurrection and hope are synonymous. Those who live on what we might call the outskirts of hope need a transfusion. The resurrection gives that transfusion. 
He said, I think of all those who are battling the dreaded disease of cancer. Talk about people living on the outskirts. They fight the gallant battle, endure the horrible reactions of chemotherapy, and anxiously await the results of the next checkup. And then there are those who still grieve over the loss of a mate, a child, a parent, or a friend. Death has come like a ruthless thief, snatching away a treasured presence, leaving only memories. What's missing? Hope. Hope has died. There's nothing like the resurrection, Chuck says, that brings hope back to life. When Christians gather in houses of worship and lift their voices in praise to the risen Redeemer, the demonic host of hell and their damnable prince of darkness are temporarily paralyzed. When pastors stand and declare the unshakable, undeniable facts of Jesus' bodily resurrection and the assurance of ours as well, the empty message of skeptics and cynics is momentarily silenced. Our illnesses don't seem nearly so final. Our fears fade and they lose their grip. Our grief over those who have gone on is diminished. Our desire to press on in spite of obstacles is rejuvenated. Our identity as Christians is strengthened as we stand in the lengthening shadows of saints down through the centuries who have always answered back in antiphonal voice, He is risen. He is risen indeed. I want to challenge you as we close our study of 1 Corinthians, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, that He is worth it. It's worth it for us to live the reality of the gospel message. It's worth it for us to leave this place today and to go out there in our circles of influence and live out the message of the gospel by sharing that simple gospel message with those who so desperately need hope. Because that's what the gospel, that's what resurrection gives us. It's worth it for us to serve. I hope that some of you who are involved in children's ministry, when you saw these little kids up here this morning, you went, man, it is worth it. Parents, it is worth it to live a biblical lifestyle, to live out the reality of the gospel message in your home. It's worth it because there's a resurrection. It's worth the investment that you make when you place checks in those little towers at the back of this auditorium. It's worth it. Why? Because there is a resurrection. Because the gospel changes everything. It's worth it. Because our life here, as James said, is a vapor. We're a mist. We appear for just a little while. And then we vanish away. And if there is something beyond what we see here, and there is, resurrection guarantees that, then we would do well to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where Paul said, moth and rust don't corrupt and thieves don't break through and steal because there is a resurrection. Paul made this clear early in his letter. In fact, if you were paying attention in chapter 2, verse 9, he quoted Isaiah and he wrote this, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And I can only imagine, great title for a song, can only imagine what awaits us on the other side. And it is all because of the resurrection. Can't help but think this morning as I was praying uh, at the close of the first service about my friend Sue Lau. 
Some of you are loving so well on Ronnie and Sue, and I'm so thankful for that. It doesn't surprise me that's who you are as a church family. But I think about Sue and the hope that she has because she knows this is temporary. This is temporary. It'll seem like just a moment to those that have gone before us until we join them. It's temporary. And we have that hope because of the resurrection. It's a great place, I think, to end our study in the book of 1 Corinthians and to go in in just about 10, 11 days from now to the birth of Jesus, knowing that eventually it would require not only a virgin birth, but it would require a resurrection in order for the gospel message to be what we enjoy today because of what Jesus did.